Thank you, everyone, for joining Games Club today. You know, just as a recap, we talk every Wednesday about trending topics in the games industry. Uh, I'm here with my co-hosts, Andrew Chen, Kelly Wallach, and Andrew Green. And today we have two guests on our show that I'm very excited about. Uh, Ricardo Zaccone, the former CEO and founder of Keen.com, which made the game Candy Crush Saga, a franchise that has been downloaded over 2.7 billion times since launch. And I'm just getting this off Wikipedia, so I'm sure it's even higher, higher now. Um, and serial entrepreneur Christian Siegerstraw, the CEO of a super evil Megacore and the co-founder of Glue and Playfish. Um, so these two gentlemen are among the most accomplished operators, company builders, investors in, in mobile games, and we're really excited to learn more from their collective experience today. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into it. So Ricardo and, and Christian, you know, there is so much happening in games right now, right? Like there's so much innovation, so many startups, um, so many cool new platforms. As, as you guys look out onto the landscape, you know, as veterans of the industry, you know, what are some of the areas and trends that you find most exciting today? And then maybe uh, Christian, we'll, we'll start with you and then, and then go to Ricardo. Sure, sounds good. So I think, you know, there's, there's of course, like a, literally a thousand interesting and exciting things happening. But I think sometimes like the short-term excitement that we have around short-term things sometimes like obscures the really big long-term mega trends that are sometimes kind of, it's easy to forget. Like mobile gaming today is what, it's over 50% of the total games market when it comes to money spent and total gaming has grown a lot. So it's like, what, $160 billion. So, so we're talking about a total aggregate mobile gaming market globally today, probably worth, call it 80 billion or so. I remember when I started my first mobile gaming company in 2001, there was literally no revenue, like you could hardly download a game at that time. And I remember having that conversation with the other folks uh, like uh, Ricardo, like Ilka, who, who back then ran a uh, kind of first generation mobile game company, who, you know, who today runs Supercell, Ilka Pananen, uh, who then ran a company called Sumea. We were all talking about when is the billion dollar moment for mobile games? When will mobile games make an aggregate of revenue of a billion dollars? And here we are like, what, maybe 16, 16, 16, perhaps 15 or 16 years later that we crossed that point where we're like at 80 billion dollars. So it's, it's really, and the fact that it's really the largest part of the game industry as a whole, I think that in itself is a pretty amazing. And it's, a, it's something that has happened because of a lot of really, really hard work by a whole bunch of entrepreneurs all around the world, building amazing games, um, as well as, of course, the yeah, handsome manufacturers and app stores and all that stuff. But that to me still is mind blowing that we've gone from nowhere to becoming the majority of the game market globally. So that to me is still the biggest thing. Of course, there's a lot of micro things happening right now, both in terms of big core games being launched on mobile that you know make their way to the top 10. Like who would have thought two years ago that you'd see PUBG Mobile as a top three grossing title pretty consistently right now, which is pretty, pretty amazing. So uh, core games are huge, but also so are some of the innovations brought in by really the polar opposite and the hyper casual folks who are able to innovate very, very rapidly on the go-to-market and how to kind of design and make games incredibly rapidly to follow very, very fast trends. So lots and lots of innovation um, everywhere. And then, of course, there's Candy Crush that just appears to just keep on giving. I think it's still in top five today, as far as I can tell anyway. <laughs> it's amazing. Com completely agree with, uh, with what Christian said. I think for me, the, the most surprising thing is that, you know, when we went public in, back in 2014, Everyone, all the questions which came from analysts at the time were, okay, what's the next game? When is the next game coming out? And how good is the next game? 
But actually, the most interesting thing for me was that actually Candy Crush is now stronger than when we went, than when we went public, in fact. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Candy Crush has grown, and this is after many, many years. And I think another trend is besides the launch of new games, that, of course, <clears throat> where only creativity is the limit, I think is that actually games that have been now on the, on the market for many, many years are doing, are doing better than ever. And obviously also COVID has helped the entire games industry because people have had more time and uh, needed some more distraction being at home. Uh, but in general, I think the other trend is that brands count more than ever in a market that is super crowded and established games are, are, are doing very well. And I remember when we had a discussion with Bobby a long time ago, he, was, he called it diversification. So often when you have a hit, you need to actually double up on the hit rather than you know, focus on immediately on the next thing. And I think this is, has, been, has been proven very, very true. Um, and maybe another trend besides basically you know, creativity and new games, et cetera, and I think also what Christian said, I was very surprised, for example, by Call of Duty doing so well. It was a very difficult game to, for example, to bring to mobile, but that's actually is doing, is doing pretty well in all the core games. But the other trend is also innovation, not only on the game side, but also on the marketing side. So I, th- I think one thing that you see is innovation in the way how games are marketed, for example, having mini games. And then you click on the mini game uh, uh, banner and it takes you immediately to a mini game within the game. So those are a few, a few, few news. I, I want to just dig in and I think um, one topic that both of you hit on, which is sort of the, the rise of sort of these previously really trip away console PC type experiences. I think PUBG Mobile, Call of Duty Mobile, that, that you, you guys both mentioned those as examples. Um, what, what in your opinion has led to the success of sort of the console quality experiences on mobile, um, specifically within the last sort of like year or two? It feels like there was really sort of a, there was a tipping point where um, a few years back it would have been, they, they maybe would not have been quite so successful there have been sort of multiple stabs at building sort of PC console type experiences in mobile, but they just, just it just didn't have this level of success. Um, I'd love to hear from you guys. Like, what's what's different this time around? Yeah, I can jump on that first, is because this has been an area that I've been super focused on now for about what six years or so, even with with Super Mega Corp. So I actually think that there's maybe three like big mega trends going on there. So one is that simply we're seeing a generation of mobile first gamers growing up. So you see gamers who grew up with mobile devices or touchscreens as their very first device they're playing on, and they don't have the same, say, elitist mindset for certain types of games where perhaps when folks like myself grew up or other, other um, kind of, say, PC generation gamers, they would look down on in an attempt to make a PC style game on mobile, where versus whereas if you grow up with mobile as your primary platform, seeing a really well-made game for your platform that happens to be a first-person shooter or a MOBA or a third-person shooter or you know or any other form of gaming that we traditionally associate with PCs, um, having that be presented to you and play well on mobile, you will play it. You will play it with friends. We're all human beings. We all enjoy playing things together. And the Homo sapiens brain in general is a hunter-gatherer sort of <laughs> sort of. Um, <laughs> uh, computer, if you like. So, you know, going out to hunt together is a, is a very, I think, a very appealing thing to any kind of gamer on any, any device. So there is, part of it is a generational thing. Part of it is also the fact that from a supply side, if you like, from a game making perspective, we have just gotten better as an industry. These games did not play very well, perhaps five years ago. And, and perhaps part of it was lack of belief and lack of sufficient dollar investment. Uh, part of it was for sure a hardware thing. 
part of it was a game engine thing. Part of it was a lack of understanding of how to build business models that would work, if you like. But gradually, as an industry, uh, we have gotten much, much better at building these experiences and also investing the sort of dollars that are required uh, in order to get it right. And, and as part of that, there's also many more sort of subtle innovations, a little bit like if you recall, people used to say that, hey, there's no way you can make a good shooter on console because the precision of a console controller will never match that of a mouse and keyboard. So why do you even try? Mm -hmm. And that was the case until Halo came along and said, you know what, don't think so. And just with certain very, very key gameplay and control innovations actually ultimately ended up being able to create a first or a shooter experience that really appeal to largely a new audience. It wasn't necessarily the PC audience that go, hey, we want to go play this, but it's rather a new console first audience. And I think it's an analogous thing that's happening on mobile where not only are we, uh, not only is there a generation growing up with mobile as a primary device, not only is there just better games available, but there's also some really, really key design innovations uh, when it comes to uh, twin stick controls in particular, as well as some more uh, level and gameplay design related issues that, that people are just innovated around in order to ultimately be able to create an experience that just appeals very, very broadly. Nothing to add. I think the Christian is the, is the expert. I've been always a skeptic in the past and proven wrong on this because I thought it was actually very difficult to bring the, the hardcore game experience on mobile. But actually, you know, it's, I was proven completely wrong there. So no, actually, I think you are probably completely right. It is insanely difficult. I mean, having been at this for a long time <laughs> and also observing that, you know, how much work and trial and error have gone into those games that have worked out. It is insanely yeah. difficult, but yeah. it's great that, you know, the category is breaking through in a major way. Yeah. Uh, maybe the only thing which I think was interesting is I think that the guys who were really far advanced on this are the guys in Asia. So especially in China. So. Yeah, I was just gonna. Very, I was just gonna very ask. Few studios in the West, very few studios in the West who are, who are uh, really good at this. Yeah, what? Why do you think China is better at kind of bringing the like larger core entertainment to mobile than the Western developers currently? I'll give you my take, and I'm sure Ricardo has, has a good take as well. So my take is that the Chinese uh, mobile games market has been AIDS very rapidly became the largest mobile gaming market in the world. One, two, it was very early on, if you like, this demographic shift that I was talking about in terms of the mobile first generation growing up, that really is an Asia-led trend in general, and specifically a China-led trend, where just the amount of game-capable mobile devices just eclipses the amount of game-capable PCs or, or, um, or consoles or anything like that. So you had this much earlier demographic shift, which signaled the demand, if you like. And on top of that, you had these very large, very successful companies, um, folks like Tencent, uh, Netties, who were able to then go ahead and invest an enormous amount into trying try to figure this out. Like I think the Chinese gaming market has been for a long time by far the most competitive game market in the world from the perspective of just domestic competition for, for players. And I think a lot of what we've seen there has just been a, a, um, a set of, if you like, a skill set that originally grew up as outsourcing studios for high-end art for Western games and for high, you know, high, uh, high production value games in general for the West, those folks ultimately started getting contracted in and brought in by folks like Tencent and Netis to ultimately start attacking this opportunity in China. And as a result, you have some of the most sophisticated mobile gaming studios specifically for core games in China. It's actually difficult to point to a high-end core game on mobile that was developed outside of China. 
today. Yeah, including, including Call of Duty. So, and, and I think that, uh, I agree with, with your question, I think that the key reason is that uh, the there was really a core audience on mobile, while in, uh, in the West, the, the, most people were actually playing mainly, mainly casual games on mobile, and the core audience was playing on PC. In China, they were, they were all on mobile. So they were, there was immediately a very, very interested audience in a huge market. I'll just make a note that I had that India and Southeast Asia are also just exploding in, in core mobile games as well. Like there was there was some statistic that I read on about PUBG Mobile and, and Call of Duty Mobile, like comprising a, a significant percentage of sort of India's uh, internet traffic, essentially, um, in, in terms of just like the, the amount of like bandwidth that they had available. <laughs> I, actually, I find India um, absolutely fascinating because for the longest time, it was sort of industry knowledge if you like what people would say hey, india is not really a gaming market it's not really a cultural thing to play games in india or you know you just hear these things being said in the like most like um what's it called most like uh, highest level blase statements um, and as it turns out human beings enjoy gaming everywhere and once you make the devices and the games available I, then as it turns out these markets can explode yeah i think the fascinating thing is that um you know folks folks in in sort of emerging emerging countries like um uh, or just emerging regions like like africa and southeast asia for example have um basically skipped the initial console generation that we had here in the west and then you know some of them have by and large skipped sort of pc gaming as well and they've gone straight to mobile and so um you know smartphones are, are the device of choice for for work for social for socializing and, and for entertainment as well right and so um uh, I, I think if you don't have the sort of past tropes of like playing with a controller or playing with a mouse and keyboard, it actually feels very natural to just touch, you know, use a touchscreen. Um, and so I think it's it's interesting that as as more of the world unlocks, uh, that eventually like you know, the concept of core mobile gaming might just become the norm as opposed to uh, an exception the way it is today. Yeah, and in general, I think that the real beauty with the games on mobile is that there are more niches and sub-segments of segments that you could possibly dream of. It literally is a device that everyone has. So core gaming can be big, but so can casual and so can competitive and so can collaborative and so can creative game. Like so can any possible motivation to play games can be very large on mobile just due to the sheer size of the market. I mean, basically it's, it's everyone because every, every person now has a device. Mm -hmm. So it depends really on your taste. Yeah. Let me um, let me take it in a slightly different direction, which is uh, if you guys had to build a new company today, um, knowing what you do now and sort of knowing all about these trends and, and areas, like how would you go about it? And um, you know, what would you do differently from before? Would you would you build a game company? Would you build something something adjacent to games? Uh, I'm I'm curious sort of uh, how, how you guys would, would think about that. Yeah, Ricardo, why don't you tell us what you are going to do next? Because, you know, you've been a while, right? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you this. <laughs> it's really, really tough to build a game company. I mean, it, it, it's the most beautiful thing in the world, and it's also the most difficult thing in the world, I think, or one of the most difficult, because I think that uh, it's very competitive. It's beautiful because if you create something that works in the small, then it's, you can scale it without much money. So the only financing we really got that took us to profitability and, and then allowed us to grow was one and a half million dollars. And with that, then we, we ended up spending hundreds of million dollars per quarter uh, without any, any need to finance that. 
So that's the beauty of it. But the difficult thing is you need really a hit. And we developed more than 200 games before we came up with a hit and went through really difficult times to reinvent ourselves. Um, so I think if you have a hit, I think that the beauty is that with a relatively small team uh, of, let's say, 15 people, you can already start. And then you can scale it slowly to 40 people. And then, you know, depending on, on, uh, on, uh, on your... Uh, on your strategy and how you want to develop the company, you can end up with 100 or 200 people like you know, Supercell in, in, in Sharibos or 2,000 people like we were, uh, but you can be as efficient with 100 or 200 people <laughs> and become even bigger, in fact. Uh, so I think coming, coming back to what they do now, basically I'm, I've been on a non-compete until the 1st of March. <laughs> so I'm looking again now at the world of games, I would say. One quick question, uh, Ricardo, that, that I had for you was, um, you know, King transitioned from web to canvas and then canvas to mobile with what looked like on the outside relative ease. Obviously, it wasn't easy. I just, you know, what 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 allowed uh, was it the, that you had the strong brand and the win that allowed you to do that transition? What helped with those 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 big platform transitions that you were able to make? Uh, there was a step in between, actually. The step in between was from, from the web uh, to web Facebook, and then from web Facebook to mobile, which was a much easier transition. And when we went from the web to web Facebook, we had completed to reinvent ourselves, because before, when we were on, let's say, on Yahoo, for example, we had a model which was completely different based on competitive games, which you would play against others, uh, which were only very shallow games with one level only, which you would play over three minutes. And we developed many of these games, more than 200 of these games. And that was actually essential for us to be able to reinvent ourselves because we then identified developing so many games, which of these games had a really good, strong core gameplay. And I believe that the core gameplay is, is really the fundament of any game. And once you have that, then you can build around it. So basically Candy Crush was uh, nothing else than building many, many more levels of our core gameplay that we, have, that we had basically identified and developed in the past. And we, 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 by mixing two different games that we created earlier, we created um, basically Candy Crush for, for Facebook first. And then from there, we, did, we launched it on mobile. And the launch from Facebook to mobile was then much easier because then we had already cracked the business model. We cracked the play with others. We cracked then, and then we bring it to mobile. We reinvented the, uh, the way how people would play the game by making it playable cross-platform because you could play with, your friends who were on a PC or you're on mobile, wherever, whatever platform they were on. But uh, it was not an easy process because it took us two and a half years to reinvent ourselves. I think actually, come, you know, come to think of that, actually, I remember, Ricardo, we were having a coffee in somewhere in London in a coffee shop 2008 or so talking about like Facebook and talking about mobile and talking about all of those things. And I, I remember then thinking, how like how envious I was that here's this company that has like all these you know proven games and can like figure out these you know potentially potentially these these these, these new platforms. What I think is so fun though or so interesting is that if you set out today, it is so so different from what it was say certainly ten years ago, but even five years ago in my mind, in that there is so much data out there. You can kind of really trawl through lots and lots of data to try to work out what might work and what, you know, what are some pretty good guesses as to what, you know, what, what sort of things um, uh, are, are worth testing out. 
there are like about a thousand great podcasts and things from really experienced entrepreneurs and folks who are doing things that you can learn from. Um, there are ways these days, in particular things to learn, really learn a lot, I think, from the hyper-casual uh, hyper market in terms of just the sort of extreme testing, almost making the ads before you start making the game, um, and audience discovery that way, like really thinking about, okay, if you're good at making games, what sort of things might, might work. And in general, there's just so many companies and so many games to study in a way that I feel like there's much less of the, hey, you have to invent anything from scratch. Um, on top of that, actually, there's, a, of course, a lot of technologies out there that you can use off the shelf these days. So I think like the, 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 the good thing about starting a company now is the market is massive. You could choose almost any little subgenre and or you know, a small niche of a small subgenre and make that game with 10, 12 people, as, as Ricardo was saying, and, and you could potentially find something. Although you do need to get at it with that mindset of it might take me five games, 10 games, 25 games before I'm going to get there. So it is, uh, it's, uh, I think, going at it knowing that you most likely will fail with your first couple of games is incredibly important. And of course, the more expensive the categories that you're going to go after, the more, the, more, uh, the more thoughtful you have to be about both how you finance your company, how you think about de-risking everything as early as you possibly can. How can you like ensure that you sort of bang your head against a, or you don't bang your head against a wall that's not going to give if you like at some point in time for too long. So it's a, uh, I think it's sort of in some ways, given the amount of innovation that's happening in the market, it's, it's, a, it's a really amazing time to be out there. And I'm sure Ricardo will remember this as well. There was a time that game companies were unfundable. People thought, hey, this is a, a Hollywood model. We can't take mm -hmm. content risk. You could not raise money for a game company. Like for example, in London, I think when both of us were raising sometime in the, in the sort of mid 2000s, for example, just extremely hard because there's nobody would want to, you know, right now you had, I saw that uh, check that was being written just the other day. It was like a $37 million seed round for Theorycraft. Like, I mean, we've, we've come a long way. So, um, um, you know, that's, 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 that's pretty great as well. But I would in general be incredibly humble, work very hard, keep costs incredibly low, know that you're going to fail several times before you're going to get it right and be incredibly unassuming. And no matter how much money you've raised, keep your burn as low as humanly possible until you find that hit. If I, if I can add something, first of all, I think that I was extremely, actually, uh, <laughs> I admired Playfish because for me, that was the golden standard when we started trying to get on Facebook. And uh, I, I don't think that you would, I mean, <laughs> I didn't feel that at all that uh, I wanted to be in our, my shoes. I wanted to be in your shoes, in fact, Christian. You did incredible work. And I thought the culture that you had built at the time was absolutely fantastic, really, really inspiring. Uh, and... Uh, I think that uh, yeah, it, it was a really hard journey to, to get there. But I think that maybe just one myth, I think that, I think really the games have the incredible opportunity that they are, can scale without much funding actually, because you need really a good game. And once you have a really good game mm -hmm. that, that proves really work to work well, you can then slowly build it out and you can also slowly build out the marketing. Basically, uh, the, the secret of Candy Crush behind the, the, the amazing game and the, the super high retention and also the good monetization that we, that we built over time was actually the marketing. Because we, 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 we grew marketing like with a chess board strategy where we doubled every, in, on every basically piece of the chess board, every time we doubled the marketing. And if you double marketing, after a few times that you double it, you, you get really big numbers. And, uh, and so you can really spend in a very controlled way 
And there are very few products, I think, that actually perform as well on mobile as game as gaming as games do. So, mm-hmm. Let me let me actually double click on that last point because I, I I know Vicardi you brought up sort of mini games or I think uh, mini mini apps as a, as a marketing innovation recently. I think one of the one of the consensus points that I've been hearing from sort of startup and, and indie mobile devs for for quite a while now has just been how difficult it is to break out, you know, as a as a new IP or a new mobile game dev in, in today's world, right? Because uh, you know. Candy Crush has been around for, you know, 10 plus years and continues to dominate the charts, you know, year after year. And, and then you have the Supercell games and, um, you know, you have all these like large existing IPs that are just, you know, continuing to, that, 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 that take a lot of the eyeballs and, and the app store rankings. Um, what, what, what do you think you could do differently if you were to start a new IP and you didn't have, you know, the benefit of branding or, um, you know, the, the, the relationships that you, that you guys already have with the app stores to, to help sort of get discovered these days. I, I, can te- I, I, I can tell you our story. So we were always late. We have never been first. We were late on Facebook. When we launched on Facebook, Zynga was massive. Playfish was there, uh, but Zynga was massive. And everyone told us, you forget it. You can't, you can't, you can't, you can't uh, go here. When we launched on mobile, we were, again, we were not the first by, by far. But I think that what we did was always to have a different approach because when we launched on Facebook, everyone was doing resource management games, and we launched basically uh, casual games on Facebook, and and they were different, and and then we innovated on the model. So I think that it's never too late. Now, of course, it's you know it's a massive market, but it's also massively competitive. But if you want to be successful, I think uh, it's very difficult to to get to to top to top numbers to become in the top ten. And there's a massive difference between being top ten and being top twenty or top thirty. If you want to be in the top 10, you have to have a, you have to be different. You know, busy. If you are different from others, then and 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 an amazing experience in terms of games, then marketing is cheap. If you are similar uh, and not differentiated enough, then marketing is very expensive. Yeah, I, I would say like the as a as a young startup right now, figuring out that product identity and the audience that you will go after, where the thing that you are making is absolutely the best, most amazing, most interesting thing for that specific small, like bullseye core audience for your game is an absolute must. You can, I don't believe you can market your way there today. I do think you need mm-hmm. to find a mechanic, a core mechanic, some core theme, if you like, and a, and a, and a pr- progression mechanic that together form an experience that there is some niche. There's some amount of players who today are playing whether they're playing Candy Crush or whether they're playing, you know, uh, Clash of Clans is, is beside the point. But there's some of them who are gradually falling out of love with the product that they're playing. They go like, hmm, I wonder what's new. Let me go check out what's new. And if you, because the market is so large, so long as you do find and stay true to a very specific target market and ultimately are able to create exactly what that target market needs and you find your wedge in that way, then to Ricardo's earlier point, you can actually begin to scale it out from there, not very expensively even, because then once you have that core product market fit with a specific sub-audience, then that's a thing that you can begin to build on. And Frank, from my point of view, I, I can't like emphasize enough how important I think it is to do that really exhaustive creative testing, exhaustive testing around like all of the things that you think you're good at making, how, what could be the different permutations of making that in such a way that you yourself are convinced that this is going to be super fun because at the end of the day you're also a target market of one if that makes sense chances are there are other folks who are like you and who might might enjoy it 
But more importantly, then go in a really unassuming way. Just go out there and test it. Try it out. Make a make a video ad of the game before you have the game. You know, mm -hmm. make a video video ad plus you know hundred different combinations of descriptions and art styles and and different you know different fake app, app store landing pages or whatever just to begin to like do your you're effectively fishing right you're fishing for can you find a sub segment that for whom this game works because you cannot break through on startup marketing budgets well maybe that 40 million dollar you know rounds if we see more of those then maybe my advice is different there but like for the vast majority of startups really very very early on figuring out how to de-risk de-risk the product in fact de-risk as many angles of making the product like de-risk the tech de-risk the sort of um, the actual creative to go with the game, de-risk even like the team and everything else in, in as, as, a, uh, as early as humanly possible. So that because game making is hard and you may make five mistakes or, you know, what was it, 199 games before you make Candy Crush, trying to figure <laughs> out how to make each individual attempt at the game as, as cheap as possible to, to start off with. It's really, really incredibly important. And everyone says, hey, it's not possible because you know what, modern games cost 5 million, 10 million, 25 million to make. You can't de-risk it. I actually believe that's wrong. I, I can believe you can de-risk almost anything with cleverly made trade. You know how this Hollywood thing of you make the trailer before you make the movie in a similar way, figure out how mm -hmm. to create that. The core concept of what you're intending to take to market, find a way to test that with some test audience until you feel like, yes, this thing is worth pursuing and then put everything behind it. Maybe if I can add one thing from our experience, I think that our basically, you know, it took us two and a half years to crack, to crack Facebook and to completely reinvent ourselves. And I think the, the key, key basically uh, learning there was that the core gameplay is the most important thing. Uh, and the core gameplay is basically the basic ingredient of, of, of the mechanics of, of the game. Um, and then the second thing is to, to measure the success of the game the key metric is retention. So you need to focus on retention, not on monetization. The retention is the most important metric. And mm -hmm. the, the, the game that really changed King was a game called Jungle Bubble, which was actually a bubble shooter. It was not Candy Crush. And with that game, we learned that actually we could take our, the games we developed in the past over the many years before, over the eight years before, we could take those games and repackage them in a new way of playing, where you would play them instead of playing competitively against others, you would play in a friendly, in a friendly play along a path instead of a, of a tournament. Uh, and, and the key thing there was basically to find out that suddenly people would, would stick around. They could come back to play the same game. And then we added virality and then we invented the, we invented the business model around, around the game. But uh, so core gameplay and, and retention would be my, mm -hmm. my advice. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And the, the, the last observation I'll offer on this is that some of the very, very best mobile games companies have been built on the first title that failed or sometimes first three titles. Okay, sometimes 199 titles or whatever it was. Again, Ricardo, but like several mm -hmm. times you do your absolute best effort and for the no reason, like for no fault of your own, it simply doesn't work out. The important thing is to attempt to get to that failure point early and to try to harvest every single possible lesson from it and to constantly build your technology and your approach to making games and your team and every other aspect of the company, build it in such a way that sort of however successful your, the current product is that you're working on, whether it's super successful or only moderately successful, or if you even need to kill it, you would have built lasting value for the purposes of your next product. You're kind of somehow focused on some innovation or methodology of how you go to market or how you figure out like 
around a specific core mechanic or you have some specific audience insight or some other specific technology that you are able to constantly build on top of and constantly try out new things on top of so that uh, you're building value over and beyond the exact game that you're working on. If, if I can, if I can say one, 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 one last thing, I think, I think that we actually, in the, in the, we learned not only from the previous games that did work, but we learned a lot also from the games that did not work. So during those two and a half years of experimentation, because one of the first things we did was obviously to copy what was working. So we actually did also launch some uh, resource management games, but they didn't work well. So the audience was not the audience was not reacting because the existing ones in the market were actually performing better than ours. But nevertheless, we learned actually how these mechanics worked, and those were also important learnings later on for putting everything together. So you know, coming back to what uh, Christian said very early on, you don't need to reinvent everything from the scratch. In fact, most things that do work is when you combine several things that are that users already are familiar with, but in a new way. So we did not invent match three. Uh, match three was, 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 was existing for a decade before, but we re reinvented the way how you do play match threes and, and also the fun of playing it in a, in a different way. I, I love this conversation. I, I, felt, I felt like between the, the two of you, there were just so many incredible insights that I feel like I could go back and just slow down and, and rewind and replay each of those points from, you know, failing fast, having healthy paranoia, finding, um, you know, making sure you, you build a game for a specific core demographic and expand from there. Um, I thought that was, you know, this, this was a, a tour de force through sort of product insights that were that were well earned from both of you. Um, I, I want to move it in a, in, a, in a slightly different direction, which is uh, more on the company building point, because you guys are such veteran uh, company builders that have scaled sort of 100 person organizations. Um, I think a, a common question that, uh, you know, that, 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 that we get from entrepreneurs all the time is like, hey, like we, we found product market fit with, with our first app or our first game. And this just isn't necessarily game specific. Um, it could just be any consumer app that seems to be getting getting some traction. You know, the retention curves are good. People are discovering the product organically on their own. Um, and then they need to figure out how to scale, you know, from that from that first sort of sign of, uh, of having a hit or, or product market fit. Um, any suggestions or um, you know thoughts from you guys on how to go from that first glimmer to you know the organizations that you guys have, have ultimately sort of built over the years? Like how do you scale sort of uh, that first hit? My I don't know, my, my philosophy is I think it's all about people, and I think it's actually two two things are important: people and culture. And people, I think you always should try to always hire people that are, that are better than you are. And once you do that, you let them do. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no point in hiring people that are better than you are. And the second thing, culture. I think that culture is the really the only thing, more or less, that stays constant and should get stronger over time, because all the rest can change. You know, strategy change, strategy changes, uh, people change, uh, the, 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 the games change, the products change, etc. The thing that really should get stronger and not change is the culture. And culture basically means how you behave when you get into the company. So the first time that someone puts the foot in the company, how mm -hmm. is he supposed to behave? It starts from when, when do you come, in what way should you work, how do you treat others, et cetera, et cetera. And culture is created from the top. So you need really to be the example because when someone comes into the company, uh, they look up to understand basically what is the what is the way to behave in the company. So, and those I think are two key things to, to key, components of, of growing. And when you do those two things well, I think the rest follows.
Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. I honestly don't know even how, what to add to that. I guess that maybe a few observations. One is, I do think that scaling any company is very, very hard. You can scale very poorly, and all of that can be masked by the fact that your product is doing well short term, because a product that is a runaway success kind of can hide the fact that you're actually doing a very poor job at company building behind, behind the scenes. So, and, and because you don't get that immediate feedback from your numbers, you know, just like when you make a game, you make a change, your numbers go up or go down, you get immediate feedback. With company building, you do not get immediate feedback. So it's extremely important to spend a lot of time really thinking about, at the end of the day, as, as um, Ricardo was saying, it is about talent and the skill of the people that you bring in, and it is about culture. How do people behave? What actions do people take? Because at the end of the day, culture is not about words. It's about what people mm -hmm. actually do. And making sure it requires constant kind of paranoia, to be honest, one of my favorite words. I don't think there is such a thing as unhealthy paranoia when it comes to company building. That sort of feeling of ultimately, are you, when you bring on board new people, are you net contributing to the internal energy of the company? Is the company staying honest to itself? Do you, are you able to stay sort of fully transparent? Are you able to make, are, do your, those new people that come in, are they able to, if you like, elevate your capabilities as a company? Not just in terms of what you do, the skill, but rather how you work and those moments. We all know those magical cultural moments inside of companies that kind of, sometimes they happen completely organically. Sometimes they're more, they're mm -hmm. more kind of scripted, if you like, but uh, usually in, you know, usually in, uh, in uh, sort of informal settings where you just see people helping each other out, people are leading by example, you bring in personalities with innate sort of goodness and energy that really contribute to each other, that then together help strengthen that culture that you're, you're building. There are lots of different kinds of successful cultures, I guess, but in particular, in my mind, some of the most important attributes are like honesty internally, that sort of sense of honesty and integrity and safety where you can provide mm -hmm. feedback to anything and everybody should feel good about both providing feedback and uh, receiving feedback. And in particular, I'm, I'm super passionate about um, numbers and being able to be completely transparent internally with numbers in such a way that you can kind of harness the collective hive mind and all the brains of everybody working on a specific problem or a specific game to look at, hey, what are the high level kind of hypotheses that we have that should be driving the success of this game and, and everyone being able to put up their hand and feel like they can go and question those and go, hey, I'm observing something different than what I hear you guys saying. And by the way, now that I'm looking at the numbers, this actually looks like a thing that perhaps we should be looking at together. Having that sort of safe environment where that's okay, as mm -hmm. opposed to an environment which is either very hierarchical or an environment where for whatever reason, people aren't speaking up. I think games are like famously difficult to make from the perspective right. of that there are just there are so many individual aspects of game making from design the gameplay design the systems design to the technology strategy to art direction to distribution strategy this is so many elements of how to make a good game that all are interlocking and all depend on each other that unless the experts and leaders in these disciplines are able to create a culture where they really listen to each other and trust each other it's very, very difficult to get to the answer. There's this famous poem about the, I think it's a seven blind, seven blind men and, a, and an elephant, where they all touch a different part of the elephant. <laughs> and they all hence think that it's a different thing. Somebody touches the 
leg and thinks that it's a tree trunk, somebody touches the tail and thinks it's a snake. Like the communication between those seven blind men, if you like, is insanely important to establish the fact that we're dealing with an elephant. And that's what I feel game development is a lot about. So that's why culture is so incredibly important because it facilitates that communication and together finding great solutions to, uh, to problems. Yeah, I think I'm, glad, I'm glad I had not to go through the elephant test. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's a recruitment technique we have. It's very secret. But... <laughs> this might be the first um, clubhouse where you've worked in an elephant in the conversation, but that was great. Yeah. Kelly, go ahead. Uh, yeah, you know, I think the, the culture building is something that I think about a lot. And I, I work primarily uh, with indie studios, you know, that are small and a lot of them are just getting started. And, you know, I have some curiosity about like how intentional are you with the culture building from the very onset, like from the very start of building the company and, and starting things? Because I, I kind of noticed that there's two ways that studios tend to go about this is one is people who sit down and spend a lot of time thinking about it very early on and others that it either just kind of organically happens and just becomes that, or I guess the third option is that they get like partway through building a studio and are like, oh no, <laughs> we have to really fix something going on here with, um, with the company culture. Um, I'm a big proponent of thinking about that stuff early and spending a lot of time at the beginning building a really strong foundation because my theory is that as you get larger, it's easier to build on top of that foundation than it is to go around later and try and throw some paint on it and you know fix the cracks in the walls and stuff. Um, but I, I would love to hear like some perspectives on that and like how intentional you are about the culture building, um, considering how important it sounds like it is. I think important is to be authentic. So I think that if you try to create a culture that is not you, it's actually very, very difficult to sustain in the long term. And I think for us, it was very authentic to all the founders because we had a very similar way of of behaving of treating others of thinking what is right and what is wrong and uh, and also of acting uh, and i think that for example things that were really important was to you know how to how do you deal with mistakes yeah? and i think that if you make a mistake it's it's really important to admit that you made a mistake rather than hide it and you have to show this at the top and it's absolutely fine to acknowledge that actually you made a mistake and that you have to, now you have to correct it. What can, what can we learn from there? But if you don't do that and, uh, and then you, you, you punish for mistakes, then you immediately kill any, any growth company because the company is made out of making mistakes and learning from that. As an example, I, for example, for me, a, a key ACID test for, for judging a company and the culture of a company and how what people think of a company is I go to the toilet. So if the toilets are clean, and people take care of things and they care about the company, then I think it's a, I think in general, the company has a good culture, or at least there is nothing negative. Uh, while if, if, uh, if I see that, that things are not treated well and people don't care about their environment where they are, then there is something probably also something wrong there. Um, and I don't, I don't mind making mistakes, for example, but I mind if people don't do their best to, to, and also to try to think two steps ahead of what, is, of what can come. And are kind of sloppy. I think that's something that I could never, never, never accept. I think that that's 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 bad. But I think that very much it has to be authentic to you. And uh, and that's and initially this was not planned. It was we were always aware of it, obviously, because we had worked all in previously in other companies. Uh, but it was not planned. It was really it was lived. And then later it was codified in terms of defining you know what what kind of company we are, uh, because as you grow, then you can't be everywhere of course all the time. And so it was really important to codify it and making sure that people 
but we also tried to bring it into the recruitment. So we tried to recruit people where 50% of the criteria were technical and 50% was basically fit with the team and with the culture we thought we had in the company. Yeah, no, those are really, really wise words. I guess what I would say is it does sometimes, it can feel very artificial early on in a company's life to begin to sort of jump too far ahead in terms of attempting to codify a culture that doesn't yet quite exist. But I'm 100% with Ricardo that I actually think the most important things for the founders to do when they get together is to really ask themselves, who, who, who am I? Who are we together? And make sure that there is a sense of true, like being true to who you are individually and making sure everyone is comfortable in the room, in their own skin and with each other's skins, if, if that makes sense. So that you have that deep sense of ease with each other and you're able to joke around, make self-deprecating jokes, be able to admit to your mistakes, be the first people to admit to your mistakes and be like entirely perfectly comfortable being human beings on a, on a quest together as opposed to have that feeling of having mm -hmm. to hide behind a title or behind a desk or behind a suit or like whatever it is sort of metaphysically that you would sort of hide, hide behind. But that kind of core honesty to have that in, so that because then you know that the interaction model that you have with each other will ultimately propagate through provided that you're intentional about codifying it through about 10 to 12 to 15 people. It just kind of happens. But beyond that, you actually have to go back and look at, okay, so how did we wait a second, so how did this work when we were small? How did we feel about it? And now, can we institute ways in which we kind of devices that elicit similar behaviors from everybody, no matter what it kind of, what it takes. And that's where I think the bigger you become, the bigger your responsibility, I think as founders and as a chief exec is to really think about what makes the company function in a certain way. It's almost like I joke about it to our, to like our, our CTO going, it's like, you know, he, he writes game engines. I feel like I write company operating systems in that it's like, how do you create the devices and tools and ways of interaction and encourage certain ways of interaction, which ultimately results in people having positive interactions with each other and feeling good and happy about being in the company. And, and to, you know, to, to Ricardo's point, feeling good about mm -hmm. the bathrooms, even though here, you know, these this COVID world, we live in our own bathrooms, but even then like taking care of shared spaces, making sure that like, you know, people pick up trash from the floor, but again, sort of metaphysical trash from the floor and that nobody, if you see a problem, you know, see something, say something sort of thing. Sure. And it does require intentional action. It requires intentional looking at it, thinking about it and thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we bring the company together around it? Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time, the big, big moments are when you're in trouble together one way or the other and how you deal with it when you end up being in trouble. That's like you show your true colors. It's easy to talk a good game when everything is going well, but when you're somehow in trouble or you need to make a big decision, uh, you know, you need to let go of a very high profile person internally. You have some other challenge, some lawsuit, something goes really horribly wrong. How you deal with that is like, those are culture like forging moments. So really thinking very, very carefully what you're going to say, how you're going to say it and how you put yourself, make yourself vulnerable and make yourself entirely human as you attempt to deal with it and invite everyone along to, you know, to, to share that problem set with you is, is, is incredibly important. Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't under, underscore more what you just said. Culture is created in particular in the difficult moments, not in the easy moments. Mm -hmm. And I can, you know, the King is built, was built basically on, on continuously on, on, on really tough moments. And I have yeah. to say that, you know, I admire the culture that, that Christian ha has built 
Because when I when I entered the first time Playfish, this was at the beginning of Playfish. Immediately I said, "Oh my God, this is incredible!" And it was really you were emanating emanating basically the spirit of you know of growth of enterprise of be, be able to make mistakes of equality, and it was amazing. So two um two tactical questions sort of just um, following up on what you guys have said. Uh, what is the right size team for a creative project like making games? And, um, you know, there are lots of sort of opposing viewpoints here. We have Supercell on one hand, right? They, they famously sort of cap their team sizes um, at sort of like high single digit numbers. And then, you know, on the other hand, you have, you know, teams over in China that are like several, several hundreds of people that are working on Call of Duty Mobile and PUBG Mobile, et cetera. So what, what's the right size team? How do you determine that? And then the second sort of related question is how does COVID-19 and sort of, um, you know, a post-COVID world change, you know, everything that you just talked about? I don't know, Ricardo, this company that you're clearly about to set up, how many people is it going to have? <laughs> no, 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 no companies at the moment. But uh, I think that, I mean, it depends. I think it depends a lot on the, on the type of game you have. I mean, if you want to develop a Call of Duty, you need many more people than if you develop, let's say, a casual game. But let's say talking for casual, I think a good size is around, let's say around 10 people. Uh, so high single digit, but, but I think in general, we were about 10 people. And what we did was to embed in the game team also someone from BI, business intelligence, and, and also marketeer from the very beginning. Um, and, uh, and then the second question was regarding COVID. I think COVID has, you know, has, the world of games has exploded since COVID. <laughs> and I, but not only games, I mean the entire digital world. So the question is rather what happens in the after COVID world when normality comes back. But uh, Christian, over to you. Yeah, no, I, I'd, I'd agree with that broadly. I think I do think it's, of course, it matters by genre, but I also think it mostly matters by face. Like, where are you in making this game? In general, mm -hmm. I think I would always try to keep the team as small as humanly possible for as long as possible. In that, like, in the the atomic unit of game making my mind is kind of a designer, an artist, and a technologist one way or the other, right? You can sometimes combine two of those into one. And if you're Mojang, you can be all in one, I suppose, right? <laughs> but, like, but that's like the, the smallest atomic unit. And like, I think that trying to keep it as small as you can keep it until you've sort of found the fun in the R&D or trying to kind of broadly figure out what it is that you're even trying to do. And ideally, these days, in the atomic unit of game company making, you need to add some kind of a marketeer or a go-to-market person that has somehow quant expertise and capable of like go and buy some fake facebook ads of, of, of something in order to try to work out would this sort of theme 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 work out uh with this sort of uh core mechanic can we get it in front of some people can we try it can we see and try attempt to de-risk it in different ways uh if you want to call that a product manager or an analyst or well, mm -hmm. i think that's that's pretty important pretty early on but then the, the really important thing is to keep it at the smallest feasible size, and it will depend a little bit on what you're making, attempt to use off-the-shelf technologies, off-the-shelf art, off-the-shelf anything you can possibly think of, off-the-shelf backend tech, off-the-shelf game engines, off-the-shelf like as much as you possibly can until such a time that you really have figured out what it is that you're making. Because that kind of production gate, if you like, when you go from that R&D or prototyping phase, however you, you, you call these things, to an, a phase where you're actually beginning to make the game you're beginning to actual some kind of pre-production like that is such an important point because at that point in time in most cases you probably need if you make a casual game maybe you need 10 people if you make a you know even slightly more complicated game with some 3d graphics and things 
you might need like tens of people. And in the case of you know, China, perhaps even, even, mm -hmm. even more. And I think really f attempting to postpone that point to a, to a place where you really have somehow figured out market testing or like de-risk this investment that you're about to put into that larger team to actually go and make the game, which also will make the game more harder to change over time. Like once you've gone through a pre-production phase and you actually have a basically a complete game, but without all the content that comes in the production phase, that's, it's really expensive to make changes at that point in time. So my, my kind of broad advice would be to attempt to keep the team as small as humanly possible for as long as you can until you for sure know what you're doing. And at that point in time, make sure that you've de-risked all the key things. You should have this like long checklist of, mm -hmm. do I now know what I'm doing on design? Do I know what I'm doing definitely on art? Have I definitely de-risked my technology choices? Have I definitely de-risked my, my kind of thematic choices and other stuff so that I don't need to change my mind on these things moving forward? And then at the end of the day, once you have a really promising concept, you can typically, even at a prototype stage, actually test it pretty well. You can typically upload it to an app store, make some ads on it, measure your retention, do some other things in order to work out, hey, is this, does this thing have legs? You, it may not have like the greatest metrics in the world, but you should be able to work out, have I made choices which are consistent with, if I build this game, this, uh, this it actually working out for me. So yeah, keep it as small as you can for as long as, as, long as you can. <laughs> in, in the post-COVID world though, do, do you feel like, um, you know, fully, fully remote work is um, still, you know, is it still possible to make the types of games that you guys have made and, and with a fully distributed team? And then when it comes to the culture building, which you spent a lot of time on today, like how does how does that work? Um, you know, if, if, if most of your team isn't isn't even in the same office and so the uh, analogy question that you used of picking up after yourself, making sure the office is beautiful, making sure people care, like how do you do that in a world where people are spread out all, all over the globe and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a remote work? Work environment. Yeah, I'll, I'll offer my quick thoughts here. So one, I was very, very nervous. I mean, we have been remote first as a company for a long time, but as we transitioned to absolutely fully, absolutely everybody being distributed as of the start of COVID, me and I think the, the founders of Super Evil and all the, all the serious senior folks, we were, we, we thought that this is going to be super risky. We don't know how this is going to go. We will work extremely hard at attempting to build moments, build culture, build ways of working that should hopefully not set us back too much in, in, in game making. And as it's turned out, like, at least we feel like with like, it is overwhelming, like overwhelmingly feel like it is absolutely possible to make amazing games completely distributed. And there have been game companies that have done this before, of course, we're not the first, but it is entirely possible. And how amazing is it that I can be here in Portugal when our CTO is in in, uh, in San Francisco and our chief product officer is in Seattle and we have folks all around the world being able to make games and attract talent in areas that could, we could otherwise never ever have recruited. And that, like, I feel like there's such an incredible talent arbitrage opportunity in the next five to 10 years for companies that figure out how to build a strong, lasting, functional culture around game making that is fully virtualized, if you like, and involving Discord and Zoom and Slack and other tools in such a way that you can kind of uh, work to replicate those moments as much as humanly possible that you would have when you are in the same space, but combine that with the flexibility that you can have when you are, you know, closer to your family and you don't have to be commute for, 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 you know, for an hour or two every day and so on. So I'm actually incredibly active right now, very actively recruiting here in Portugal, very actively recruiting in the EU time zone. Uh, in general for the, the next phase of growth for, for our company. And also I spend like probably more time than ever thinking a lot about culture and thinking about moments and 
thinking about how we, with every new person that joins, like how do we strengthen how we operate and how do we strengthen how we feel good about kind of about about working together. So I think COVID was not only like a demand side opportunity. I actually think it's an incredible supply side opportunity for the for the game industry. It's one that we are embracing mm-hmm. wholeheartedly. We're still discussing what we actually will do about our office. I mean, there's clearly FaceTime is important. We definitely will get together as a company every every six months or so when COVID permitting. And how much office space do we need? We don't truly don't know. I mean, we want to provide co-working opportunities for people who want to work together, but at no point will we be requiring anybody to go into an office moving forward as a company, because we just think there's so many advantages to not, not doing it. Yes, it does require ongoing, very careful work from cultural building, company building, process building uh, perspective, and in particular for more junior employees, figuring out how to men- build these mentor programs or how to onboard folks who normally benefit from being kind of physically next to a more senior employee. It's a challenge. There's many, many challenges, but I feel like there's so many more opportunities to get, be able to attract and work with talent that for whatever reason, because of their ge- geographic location, their family situation, their background, whatever reason, otherwise you would not have been able to work with. So this is an incredible opportunity to build diversity uh, into the teams that ultimately helps you make better games. I think if I think of the talent that we could not hire because of the location, he said this would is now changing all the paradigms, which is an incredible opportunity to work with talent wherever the talent is, and also put talent together wherever the talent is. And I think that you know there are companies that have done this before COVID, like for example the Playrix guys. I think they already were doing this before, and it's shown that actually the, the opportunities that this opens up. So yeah, completely agree with Christian. I think then the future the world post COVID will be not anymore. Will not be the same as before. Maybe not completely virtual, but definitely not completely in the office anymore. That's fascinating. I think it's something that we're uh, we're working through right now. And I think games is uh, it, it's like COVID's been been a silver lining in terms of engagement and people playing more games. But it's also been 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 tough for for the developers for the supply side in terms of um, creating these these works of art, which. At the end of the day, um, you know, relies a lot in culture and, and camaraderie between the teams. I think it's something we're all figuring out. But but like you guys, also optimistic, um, the massively expanding the potential supply of uh, of folks that that you can have join a team that will, will over the long term sort of outweigh sort of the near term friction of figuring out how to get people to stay stay in better touch with each other. Um, I know we're almost out of time. We traditionally do this for for about an hour. Um, wanted to sort of open it up, like Kelly, Andrew, Ricardo, question if, if you had any other topics or questions that you wanted to raise, um, you know, please, please, please throw them out there. I mean, I think my, my one question that I had might be actually a giant topic, so maybe we can do a short version of it. Um, but, you know, I, Emily Greer talks about this a lot, about the term like casual game and casual gamer, um, especially, you know, around in the mobile market. And this idea that there are ca- like quote unquote casual gamers who are, are been playing Candy Crush for you know ten years like hours and hours and hours a day, um, you know, and how casual is that actually? Um, and just kind of thinking about that term, and I, I would just really love to hear like any kind of thoughts on on this term, like the use of the term casual um, for a market that yeah is billions and billions of dollars and people all over the world playing at really high engagement rates. Like, is casual actually really the right? The right term for this for me the definition the core definition of casual it's a game that is of broad appeal uh that is easy to learn and to play and that can be played over a short period of time so you should be able to play a casual game over let's say three minutes 
you're going to need to play it over you know many hours while a core game requires much more learning to learn to play it and uh, and it's usually more complicated and also you can't just play it for three minutes that would be my definition yeah, I think the um, the casual like player, I think maybe is what comes off as sounding like dismissive or something of the amount of like time and effort that some that the players yeah. will actually put into a game that is considered casual. There's also a demographic uh, difference. So I think if you look at the typical casual dem casual player, and there are of course you know many typical casual gameplays, you know like shoot bubble, bubble shooter, match three, uh, quiz, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, but the typical player usually is 60% of the audience is female. And it's a rather, let's say, 20 plus audience rather than younger kids or young, younger or ma younger male audience, like more core games. But the, the appeal is very wide. So we had half a billion players playing Candy Crush, <laughs> you know, every, every, every month. So. Yeah, I guess what, what, what I would, the way that I would have thought about it in general is that you either think of yourself as a gamer where gaming is a thing that you do and hence you're willing to invest a bunch of time into learning a new game and you're happy with long game sessions, you're happy with getting into game communities and consuming content of those games and because, because game is one of your, gaming is one of your hobbies and that's, you know, so you think of yourself as a sort of core gamer from that point of view or gaming is something that you do when you're not doing something that is one of your core hobbies, which is much shorter sessions, you probably won't invest a lot of time into, but you can still have lots of fun. You can might play that, you know, casual games for five, 10, 15, 20 years, who knows, right? So in, in my mind, it's, it has more to do with the mindset of how much you're willing to invest upfront to learn a game and how long, how much time you're willing to put into, into that game. And actually, you know, using very simple words to, to, describe a what you know 70 80 billion dollar market in like the in, in sort of incredibly crude terms is maybe not super useful for anybody but i do think still that there probably is something at least something pretty basic in those in, in those in those terms awesome cool. this is i had really a i had a i had a really quick last fun last question um for, for or not i don't know if it's the last question but um I was wondering, um, with all of the kind of confusion and interest around, uh, you know, IDFA appreciation or app tracking transparency, you know, a lot of folks um, are either confused or, or, or scared about it. But do you think there are any opportunities um, uh, that could come from it? Obviously, there's a lot we don't know yet. But, it, you know, if, if thinking about it more abstractly, are, are there some opportunities that could come? um you know to the market and or for new new developers as well i'd love to hear anyone thoughts on that i can start with that and by the way i was sure that your last question was going to be around nfts what about crypto i was like i almost put be... that in our no. question yeah, exactly i was like <laughs> this will actually be officially the first uh clubhouse room i've ever been in where crypto did not get mentioned other than my. that's my other up. question christian is where's your <laughs> nft no don't, don't do it don't do it don't do it um, Anyway, um, no, that is probably for like a 10 hour conversation. I'm super fascinated by it, but not, not for today. Um, so IDFA, so I actually think that it's a huge opportunity. Anything that changes the broad physics, if you like, of go-to-market in games tends to create lots of opportunities. And the fact that these highly targeted, uh, highly targeted ad ad advertising through by using um, IDFA and, and so on and, and the associated tools if you like, that allows you to micro-target that way, has created certain types of marketing organizations that are incredibly focused 
on finding a very specific type of user purely through quant-driven experimentation methods. Whereas sometimes good old-fashioned creative and good old-fashioned like, you know, how marketing was done in, you know, 20 years ago in computer games in terms of finding a, an incredibly resonant theme and figuring out how to build truly breakthrough emotional messaging around what you're about to do actually creates like that there is an opportunity to do that right now through content, through, um, through perhaps influencers, through other ways of working to bring a kind of message to consumers through more traditional marketing mechanisms, if you like, that perhaps would have gotten drowned out in an IDFA marketing dominated world. So I feel like the sort of marketing creative will become all the more important. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for indies and new folks to come in as a result. Yeah, I agree. I think it's an opportunity, especially for new, de for new developers that have a strong game that uh, gives an opportunity to come through. They, don't, they haven't collected so many, so they, they, they can really get through, through, through with, with, uh, with marketing. Awesome. Phenomenal. Well, I think that marks the end of our time today. Um, you know, we, we normally go for an hour and we, we went over today because the conversation was just so good. Um, but this has been extremely insightful. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot about startups, for, for mobile games, company building, a little bit about uh, elephants and, and fables as well. That, that was a great one. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, on, on behalf of the, uh, the team and all of our listeners, you know, a, a huge thank you to, to Ricardo and Christian for, for spending time with us today. 